You're listening to a Bespoken Media production. This is my family, mental illness and me. I'm Dr. Pamela Jenkins. I, like so many people, grew up with a parent with a mental illness. My mum, Irene, had schizoaffective disorder. This had a profound effect on my childhood and continues to impact my life, even today. This podcast is made by the charity, Our Time. In each episode, a different guest will share their own experience of growing up with a family member or family members living with mental illness. I really hope that you enjoy listening to these conversations as much as I enjoyed having them. We do explore some difficult and potentially triggering memories throughout the series. So there's advice and links to support in the show notes. Please, please do speak to someone if you're affected by anything raised in the episodes. On this episode, I'm speaking with renowned psychologist and presenter, Emma Kenny. My name's Emma Kenny and I'm a psychologist and broadcaster. Good morning, Emma. Lovely to meet Good you. Morning. Meet you properly. Lovely to meet you. So nice to have you here. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on and chat with me today, especially about a subject that isn't always the easiest to talk about. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. I guess I just want to, yeah, open the floor to you and um, ask you to tell me a wee bit about, about your dad. So my dad was literally my best friend. So a lot of people will talk about relationships with parents in those terms and sometimes people struggle with it because I genuinely think that not everybody has that kind of connection with a parent but my dad was my saviour he always was he made me feel really safe so when I think about my relationship with him one of the most critical changes in my life has been realising that I can't go home anymore if that makes sense because he Mm -hmm. was home and it causes you to grow up quite fast so my relationship with him was perfect and I mean perfect There is nothing I would have changed about it. But ultimately, my dad got really sick. He'd had a breakdown about 20 years before he actually took his own life because he'd been at work and it had got really pressured. Never had a day off sick, never had any mental health issues, never had any concerns regarding his health, full stop. And then over a period of about a month and a half, he was having his confidence eradicated by a very aggressive manager who was very nasty and who actually, my dad was correct about, he was trying to alert people to the fact that this man was, one, a bit of a psychopath and secondly, doing things that were illegal for the company. But people didn't believe my dad and that was very problematic. And I think that a period of stress that a lot of people don't understand is it can do things like cause psych- psychosis. And my dad had some psychosis and ended up with psychotic depression. He, at that point, went into a mental health unit because he tried to stab himself mm. and it was horrific because the mental health unit was one of the most grotesque excuses for a treatment centre ever. And it took me about a week to get him out. And when was that? After I got him, this was 20 years before he died. So it's, I'd have been, it's probably 22 years. So I reckon it would have been 2000. He would have been in hospital, 1999, you know, 2000, the year 2000. And how old were you? So he, I was, oh, I was in my 20s, you know, my 20s yeah. at that point. Yeah. And um, I moved home. So I was living away from home and I moved home to look after him and nurse him. And so it took about a few Gosh. months after that before I got him retired from work. And then he had the best time ever because like once he wasn't working, once that stress had gone, the psychosis had passed. And then we get to not 2019 or 2018 is where it begins. And my dad 
was sat at my table on a Sunday afternoon because he used to come every Sunday. And he just suddenly looked at me and said, I don't know why you're doing this, Emma. And I knew straight away that something was going on because obviously that suspicion that comes through with psychosis. Mm -hmm. So I then said to him in a reassuring way, I'm really sorry that you feel that way because obviously you don't want to argue with somebody who might be losing a grip on reality. And he'd been on antibiotics. So my initial concern was he's having a reaction through these antibiotics because again Mm -hmm. antibiotics very rarely can cause this kind of psychotic reaction and then I thought it'd be a urine infection and it turned out that it was a urine infection but unfortunately they failed to diagnose it and it turned into sepsis and what people don't know about sepsis particularly in the elderly is that sepsis can cause a thing called delirium and delirium is psychosis but it's meant to be temporary but it wasn't my dad unfortunately stayed in quite a psychotic state then a manic state then another psychotic state and this went on for quite a long time and then I went to his house one day having had this real urge to just go I'd been there all weekend my boy was doing his GCSEs at the time so I'd not spent any time with him because I'd been nursing my dad or working and I had this feeling that I needed to take my boy out for some lunch and was just chatting away and all of a sudden I had this really uncomfortable feeling and I just dropped my son home and I dashed to my dad's and I can remember running through the gate and shouting him and I ran into the house and I ran the wrong way because my dad was hanging himself in the garage and by the time I got to the garage and cut him down I was so hysterical I couldn't resuscitate him because I wasn't in the mind space for it if that makes sense and then unfortunately when the paramedics arrived they didn't follow protocol and they didn't resuscitate my dad either so it was kind of a cataclysmic catastrophe where ultimately I didn't save him you know and that's something that's been really difficult to come to terms with but also something that I've had to so that's my story really that ultimately I lost the most important man in my life really (sighs) and it's been a journey that's been profound and it's also completely illuminated a shift in what I understood about mental health and also myself as genuinely, I don't know about you and your experiences, but I did not know what it was like to feel suicidal. I always thought that I was somebody who would never feel suicidal, but God, I wanted to kill myself after my dad killed himself. I really did. I wanted to die. There's no doubt about it, you know? And I think that that's been really um, helpful because no one ever told me that that was normal. Does that make sense? Like no one yeah. ever said to somebody like me who works in the area and who's worked with many people in this field yeah. and that's worked with many clients, no one ever said, by the way, um, your dad and his death might make you want to kill yourself yeah. and it's okay because that's normal yeah. and there's nothing wrong with that feeling but just weather the storm because yeah. if you just understand it's completely normal when you lose somebody traumatically to want to escape, mm-hmm. that would have been really helpful for me. But nobody yeah. did. You had to go through the motions yourself, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it absolutely does. And I think, gosh, everybody thinks they're resilient until they're not. And yeah, to lose a parent in, in, in such a way, you can't possibly anticipate how, you, how you'll react to that. And however you react is absolutely natural to you. And, and did you have support? You know, when, when oh god, there's no support, is there? No, I mean, the bereavement officer came and was about as useful as a chocolate teapot. The system's geared against families who lose somebody traumatically because mm. people are covering the backs for failures. 
you know, it's really introduced me into a world where I realise that what needs to change is that we need to, as a community, come together more over grief. So, like, we need each other, not necessarily systems. We need to talk more about it. My dad and his death has grown me in the most beautiful way. It's an exquisite grief that I have. You know, I fundamentally have that chasm of agony and I would never shift it or change it because it connects with my father. And even though the end is bleak, the life wasn't. The life was absolutely amazing. My dad was just the most wonderful human being. He taught me everything that I am and he made me so much better than I could have been. And he reminded me throughout my life, you know, that just because... I didn't fit into systems or didn't succeed in areas that others succeeded, that that was just because I was an odd shape for the systems around me. And he also taught me that the right way is rarely the easy way, but it's always the right way nonetheless. And so there are lessons that I carry with me. And so he's still present in a lot of ways. But I think that when it comes down to mental health and mental illness, even somebody who's well-trained, and I am well-trained, I didn't fundamentally understand what it's like to deal with somebody who's so acutely mentally ill and then not have the end of the story with a positive outcome. You know, it was over. There was nothing I could do. And the thing about resilience is you don't build resilience without suffering. Suffering Mm -hmm. is the indelible link. It's the thing that connects you. Without the agony, there is no joy. Without the foundations falling apart, there's no rebuilding. So I think when we talk about resilience in mental health, we do it all the time. We don't actually show people what that means. We say, be resilient, grow, develop, try new things. No, we're not really saying that. We're saying life's full of real suffering. Undertake to do it joyfully. That's resilience. So I think we've kind of got a mismatch in our world around us, particularly about what makes us happy and healthy and how we achieve those goals. And for me, dad's death, as much as like I miss him every day, it's shaped me in the way that I didn't know was possible. And I'm really grateful for that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also important as well to remember, you know, we use the word resilience a lot, but some people aren't, and that's also okay. Mm. I think the word Mm. resilience can be maybe unhelpful for people who don't feel that they are Well, I think that people who don't think they are resilient are probably more resilient than they know because they're at least admitting (laughs) weakness and admitting their pain, like... Yeah, I agree with you. I think there's a burden in our society at the moment, which is everyone talks about mental health, but very few things are done to change the situation and the state of play. Yeah, And everyone says, oh, acknowledge how you feel and talk about how you feel. But no one says, well, a lot of people are going to be really disinterested in that. You know, we have this idea that people are going to be able to reach out and ask for help and it's going to be given to them. It's not. Actually, it would be far more honest and brave and courageous to say, Sometimes you're going to feel abandoned. Sometimes you're going to feel isolated. Sometimes it's going to be agony. Sometimes you're not going to have the resources to know what to do. And sometimes people around you aren't going to even try to help because they're too busy with their own lives. And none of that makes you a bad person or a worthless person. It's all about what can we do in that moment to realize that that's a normal experience. It's actually really normal. And I just think we've got to a point now with mental health in the world around us in the western world in particular where we've got so lost that ultimately unless you have moments like I've had which is where you have to make a decision that's fundamental to whether you survive or don't survive very Mm -hmm. often you're just freewheeling through this murkiness not feeling happy not feeling fulfilled not feeling purposeful because you're just stagnating and no one's really helping you to reach in 
to those feelings to figure out what to do next. And I think that's why people are so unhappy right now. Yeah. And I guess that's especially important when you look at children who are in a situation where they have a parent with a mental illness and who do need that support and they do need to be able to reach out and help. And I wonder, oh, yeah. did you have much when, so you said your dad had that breakdown initially 20 years ago when you were in your twenties. Did you feel that as a family that you had support to help your dad? We didn't have any external support, quite the contrary. And I would say when you think about families, everybody imagines that you're all on the same team helping out and it just doesn't work that way in families, you know? So mm-hmm. I did a lot of looking after my brother helped. My mum's quite a rejective person, no disrespect to her, but she's quite a cold person. And you know how it is with mental health. You need reassurance and warmth. And yeah. also you need to be able to minimise the frustration that people feel because I don't know about you, but personally I think that people get really frustrated with people who are mentally ill. Like there is this yes, do. kind of, mm-hmm. yeah. And it's really hard because you're trying to be warm and reassuring. There are these people and voices that are around you and they're not doing that. They're doing the opposite. Yeah. So there wasn't a lot of support. And yeah. also my dad... And this is the other thing that I think that when you were a young person growing up, these days you're kind of aware of mental health issues and you're aware of what is out there or not out there, but you're aware of mental health. But my dad came from an era where like mental health just wasn't talked about. Mental illness wasn't talked about. So yeah. the idea of saying to him, you know what, dad, maybe you need a little bit of therapy. He'd have just been like, I'm not doing that. I'm not sitting in a room and talking to a therapist. And he didn't have that connection with the authentic journey of self because he came from a time where it was stiff upper lip get on with it and I think still if you've got a young person of 19 20 21 their parent even though they've been brought up fundamentally in a bit more of an evolved era of mental health it's still the stigma is there like it's weakness to admit that you've got these problems so ultimately that's why people get to crisis so managing a parent with mental health problems it's really challenging because fundamentally you love them secondly the transitions occurred where you are the carer, not mm-hmm. the opposite way around. And you have to let go of all those ideas that you had about what your life looked like and how it was meant to be. Mm-hmm. And that's no disrespect yeah. to the person who you love. It's just what happens. And very quickly you go from being the child and being allowed to be that child. And that's a really important space to yeah. having to be a grown up. And there's that Mm -hmm. thing about, you know, you look around the room and you're looking for the adult and you realise it's you. It's horrifying when you're suddenly like, oh God, it's on me now. Yeah, it's a lot of responsibility. Yeah. What about your story? Was it like that for you? Yeah, my mum, so my mum had, she was unwell before I was born um, and she had a a diagnosis of schizoaffective disorder. Yeah. So I know you you'll know what that is. Um so yep, no, no, of, it's um, really challenging. Yeah, schizophrenia and bipolar and yeah. The whole package. So yeah. um she was sort of in and out of hospital t- um till I was 7. So my dad and I lived wow. with my granny and then um she'd come home at weekends. Um yeah. and then she came out of hospital and we sort of had home helps and social workers and things because my dad had to work. And then uh um, my dad died when um, oh, I, wow. I just turned 11. So, but my mum wasn't really well enough to, he had stomach cancer. 
um, super young. It's weird. I recently have really overtaken young. him in age, which is a very strange yeah. thing. No, so, I totally understand that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so my mum, me staying at home with my mum wasn't really feasible. She was involved at that time in the conversation, but I think it was the right decision. So I went to live with uh, my dad's sister and her family. So I went from being an only child to inheriting two sisters who are my cousins but you know I've now got two sisters Eight sisters so. yeah and I saw my mom at weekends and things but um it was very uh I sort of lived two different lives I would say um this life at home um in the east end of Glasgow you know at <laughs> the weekends and then I had you know I went to school my you know gosh my dad's insurance money paid for me to go to private school so um I ended up going to was looked but, after you that way. Yeah, but it was a very funny thing coming with my really strong Glaswegian accent to this <laughs> school with all these all these really proper people, you know, like from the army and all, you know. So, um, but it was great, you know, it was it, it was lovely, but it was a really difficult um I had a lot of anxiety, a lot of panic attacks, yeah. and I just worried about my mum all the time. And it was her condition was very stressful because it was very outwardly presenting. So yeah. she spoke to herself all the time. She just lived in her own world. And I had this mixture of just um, worry and also embarrassment, which yeah. I feel guilty about all the time. But I, I, I just wish I'd kind of embraced it more. But it's hard when you're a child. So, um, and then, you know, I, even though I wasn't necessarily directly her carer, you are a carer, you know? Of course. As soon as you start um, worrying, I tried to control things. I was always trying to control what she did and how she make sure you lock the door. And she was a big smoker. Yeah. So she, you know, um, I worried about that. So, yeah, it was just, it was just, um, she went into care. Finally, she was ho hospitalized again um, when I was, how old was I? 22, I think. And she never came back out. So um, she ended up in care. And then sadly, she eventually would get, when I, got her to where I was living so we settled in a place in Scotland and moved her to the care home here and then COVID hit and um, and then she got COVID and I cannot believe after the life that she had that COVID got her yeah it's just like oh. and also the fact that the debilitating reality of not being able to have access normally how you would be able to have access because of all those rules and regulations and it I don't think people understand just how important. I was talking to somebody the other day about the fact that they lost a parent to dementia during that period of time and familiarity and connection, like they're just like healers, you know, you need yeah. to be around people yeah. and all of that has taken away and that must have been just unbelievably critical for you to have gone through all that and to end up in that situation. It was It was a weird one because actually in the end, her mental illness was less problematic and it was her cognitive decline that <sighs> happened over the years, which I am not a medical doctor, but I do think that the amount of medication that she was on for I so agree. many years. I agree. Yeah, had definitely. A severe impact on her and also on her. Um, she had really bad. She was on, is it lithium is the one that um, yeah. impacts your yeah. kidneys? Yeah. So she had, she was always every two years, like clockwork, she'd have to go in because her she was struggling with her kidneys and that's why she ended up in the hospital 
where she got COVID because her kidney, there was something wrong again. And I knew when they called to say she had to go into the hospital, I knew that she would get COVID. Or actually when they phoned to say she, that she had COVID, I knew. But um, it's just a real sadness. The last time I saw her was Christmas Eve 2020. And I am so, <laughs> I will never, it's one of those things. And I, I feel bad saying this to you because what happened with you, my yeah. word. Um, but you know, it was masks and, oh God, I didn't hug her. I didn't hug her goodbye. Yeah. Like, why did I not just give her a hug? Like, who cares? You know, she was 74. She was in there. I didn't have COVID and tested. And I just, and she didn't understand. Like, she was at that point where she didn't understand about the pandemic. Like, she wasn't really able to no. cognitively no. appreciate what was going Connect on. So it, she would yeah. just see me coming in. Sometimes she didn't really recognize me. And then she asked me to hug her. And I just didn't hug her because I was like, so that for me is... Um, hard and then I didn't go when they phoned to say that you know if I wanted to see her I had to go like now now um, but I'd be all you know geared up and stuff and I didn't go as many many people in the country thousands had to make that choice whether or not to go and see a loved one <coughs> when they were dying um, I didn't because my husband has um, a condition where he's a wee bit uh compromised and by that point we hadn't had we didn't at that stage we didn't have vaccines yet and I had to choose between the possibility of bringing COVID home um and not seeing her and I had to pick my family um and I didn't go and see her so it's yeah it's really tough but none of that was you that was I know. all the stuff that you were told to do you were doing the right thing and also with respect, when you've spent your life dealing with anxiety that you didn't create, that was kind of pushed on you because of your circumstances, when you're given those momentary decisions to make, you just have to go for the one that's going to have the most positive outcome. I know. And you're a victim of circumstance, yeah. not a victim of choice. And it's a bit like me with my dad. You know, I cut him down. I did the hard thing. And then I got hysterical and didn't even resuscitate him. You know, and it was completely possible that I could have resuscitated him and the thing about guilt is I've learned it's a wasted emotion unless it changes something like it's great if it changes something you know if I feel guilty because I've nicked that lollipop and I realize <laughs> I'm going to go and pay the shopkeeper because I can make an actual active change to my behavior then cool but man guilt is not there to do anything but be let go of when it comes down to those situations like yeah. my god most people don't even do what you did. Most people, when they've had a parent who has been problematic for them, has caused them embarrassment because you said before you wish that you'd embraced it. Like what kid embraces a parent <laughs> muttering to themselves or acting chaotically? What child doesn't genuinely have resentment because they didn't get the safety of their environment and had to live their life different, has to deal with the death of a father and all of that stuff. And like, why you, that big why you? You know, you've been through yeah. all of that and you still cared enough to follow her and make sure that she was resettled and always be present in her life. I don't think you deserve guilt. I think you well, deserve to feel a sense of pride. Well, thank you. very That's... few people would have done what you've just said. And it's so intriguing to me that you'd choose to 
beat yourself up so badly over something that firstly you didn't cause and secondly you tried to soothe often and you were there right until the end. Yeah, not masked up and wearing some ridiculous outfit that terrifies somebody because she wouldn't have known what the fuck was going on there. Yeah. So you chose to remember that final meeting, saying goodbye when yeah. she was, you know, aware of who you were and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I just think you need to let go. That's the thing about, that's Thank the you. irony, isn't it? If somebody's got cancer like your dad, it's kind of a journey yeah. and you ultimately see the journey yeah. in decline. You've got some kind of sensibility about it and logic about it and it's shit, but you can kind of quantify what's happening. Mental illness isn't like that. It's like, mm-hmm. it's such an intangible and you're like why is this happening why is this going on and even though you know well because it's a biological disease and there's actually something going on in the brain it's like no it doesn't feel like that because there's nothing that i can see that i can do that's going to change the outcome of this and yet equally i feel like surely there's an answer and then you're dealing with as you said the what ifs it's the same with my dad when it came down to medication they royally messed it up and it's one of the big problems with my father's death and with your mum it's like you see all these things that were meant to help them and often don't help them and then you're left with like a billion questions of what could have been done better (laughs) and sometimes there's that kind of need to just be like maybe this is just what was meant to happen maybe this is ultimately awful but maybe it's it I I sometimes say this is completely left field and not everyone will connect with it but I look back at when my dad first tried to kill himself, which was when he had the psychotic depression all the years before in 2000. And I ran into the kitchen and found him and I managed to get my brother and I got the knife off him and I said, Daddy, you're hurting me. And he stopped doing it. And that was his first going into hospital. And I remember always having in the back of my mind this idea that this could happen again, it could happen again, it could happen again. Then it did happen again. And fundamentally this time he succeeded, but I was nearly there. I nearly sorted it I nearly solved it right because I felt that feeling I drove to the house I ran around the house I went into the lounge instead of into the garage right so fundamentally I'm there again just about to save him and I didn't and I thought to myself god what if I've been doing this again and again and again what if I'm on some kind of weird psychic loop journey (laughs) where I get re-bloody incarnated and go off and do this thing where I'm constantly (laughs) trying to make this man be alive and every time I get a bit better and this time I got another 20 years and I'm like maybe it was just meant to be that way yeah maybe dad was always meant to kill himself maybe that's my lesson yeah maybe that's okay and I think with you it's like okay you're who you are because of your mum you don't get to have the kids that you've got you don't get to be in love with the man that you're in love with you don't get to do any of that unless you have every breath of your journey so you can't have what you have without mm-hmm. accepting what you've endured and you either yeah. go well I'm willing to sacrifice my family and have my mum in a different outcome or I would never choose to remove a breadth of that experience because of what I have and I think I've really come to terms that yeah. I'm like I really like me yeah I messed up I like in lots you of too. different ways <laughs> well, I like you too you know what I mean and it's like I'm so imperfect and I'm so fallible and I'm so human and I'm so broken and I'm so built. I'm all those things in the same moment. But what I know is every bit of my experience has created this outcome and no Mm -hmm. way am I sacrificing what I've got. And if I have to have gone through all this to have all this, that's absolutely what's going to be. So when I hear what you're saying, all I feel is like, oh, wow, maybe what you've got to do is be like, that's intended for me. Yeah. And that's really hard because people are like, well, that's like saying that 
that person who's had all those horrible things happen to them deserves it. It's like, listen, when I work with people who've been horribly <laughs> abused, and I've worked with many, I've worked in high sexual trauma a lot of my career, my job is to help them come to terms with the fact that all of that was horrible, but who they are is a blessing. And you can't change yeah. breath of it. And so it's not that it gives what happened to them worth. It doesn't, but it gives their experience value. And then from that value, they can move forward in the world going, these yeah. horrible things happen, but look at what an amazing human I am. And if I have to accept that I love myself, then I have to accept that whatever brought me to this moment in loving myself is something that I accept was part yeah. of my journey of worth. It doesn't put worth on the experience of the abuse, but it puts worth on the experience of the learning from it and making you the person you are. And that vision of you in that room, not giving your mum a hug, it's like, no, you didn't give her a hug, but you gave her a lifetime of love. <laughs> I mean, yeah. what would somebody choose to have? The final hug or the actual journey getting to that point where you made a decision to protect your family because you love her, but you had kids and you had a husband. Like, yeah. yeah. Gosh, part of your journey. such strength of character. I mean, I can definitely, it's interesting the way, I feel like the way that your brain works and your imagination works, I can really relate to because, you know, the whole playing out the different scenarios in your yeah. mind. And I think um, it's just really interesting. Yes, I have thought, and at times, what would it, what would life have looked like if, you know, if my dad hadn't died or if my mum hadn't had mental illness? And yeah. it's hard, as I'm sure. I mean, I know you've just had your your little one, your third. Um, yeah. And you've got your boys. And I think it, it's hard to see. I don't know if you find this, but other people who have their parents around, especially when you like you had a, a lovely relationship with your dad and I had a lovely relationship with my mum and. One of my biggest heartbreaks is that my boys don't get yeah. to experience that. Yeah. And, oh, 100%. You know, so it's, but then like you say, my boys wouldn't be here if, That's if it. things hadn't panned out the way that they had. So And they wouldn't a, be who they are without yeah, what exactly, they have. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, yeah. A, it's, it's so strong that you are able to really just embrace that feeling and, and in light of everything that happened. And, and t you've said a couple of times, that, that you didn't manage to save him but that was not you, for you to do you know right and I right. just think that it's incredible that you are but that's what you would have felt like as well you wanted to save your mum you wanted to save your mum yeah. you wanted to save your mum like even the fact that you look back at your childhood and you're like I should have embraced it more I should have been cool about the fact that my mum was muttering to herself while walking down the street <laughs> like no kid ever in the history of a kid would ever do but yeah. that's that's the adult savior complex the one looking back and going how could I have been better what could I have done better and ultimately with my dad and his death and how it played out I had the biggest lesson of going well it wasn't for me to save him because maybe his story was meant to end that way so as opposed to it just fundamentally being the physical experience of I could have resuscitated him nowadays I'm like no that wasn't my journey. I didn't have a right to steal his choice. I didn't have a right to steal his rebellious moment. Like, I'm sure that 10 minutes after what he did, he would have probably made a different decision, right? Yeah. But in that moment, that was right for him. And whilst I will always say to people, weather the storm, because suicide is just such a final answer to such a impermanent state. You know, that saying this too shall pass, it's very effective because it really will. The good times pass, the bad times pass. And some people get really unlucky. Don't get me wrong, I appreciate, you know, I look at my life and I've had my struggles when I was a kid. 
I had an eating disorder for a long time when I was a teenager and I like to physicalise my anxiety. So I've got quite bad tics that I'll do. Like if I'm quite good at not having tics in front of people, I can do it. I mean, like as soon as I say it, I start to tick my head because that's the way it goes, you know, but I can kind of control it and contain it. So I know that I physicalise anxiety and that comes from, you know, my childhood and stuff. But arguably... I wouldn't change my weirdness, if that makes sense. <laughs> like, I kind of really embrace my oddness. I think that one of the things that going through a life where it's not been as simple and where people often nowadays will look at my life and think, well, she's got a great life. And I have. I've got a great life because I do not conform very much to anybody's standard. I do have a really big mouth and I offend a lot of people with my views and that's okay because, you know, you keep close to the people in the end who reflect who you are and what you think and how you feel and you build your stories around that and I'm not here to impress the world which I think I used to want to try to do because when you're a pleaser and you want to be a nice person you just want to go around and make everybody be nice about you know and that's probably a hint of like narcissism in there isn't there that like you know I want to be liked by everybody like me and these days since my dad killed himself it's been really liberating because I'm like fuck, I'm never, ever going to feel that pain again. Unless something happened to one of my children, and I appreciate, you know, as a mother, you'll be the same. There is one thing that I don't know whether I could stomach, and that's something terrible happening to my child or my yeah. children because they are everything. But apart from that, I think I'm pretty able now to go, well, that was so agonising that everything else just feels pretty okay to deal with. And mm -hmm. I look back at my own mental health issues and my own journey of mental illness, and I think to myself, like, it's embodied me with a richness that I don't think, you get unless you've been in those situations yeah. you know even with yeah, Etta yeah. like Etta Bloom our little girl like when I think about her and I think you know without dad killing himself would I have carried on that IVF journey because it'd been a long journey and obviously Covid screwed it up quite a lot because unfortunately it meant you couldn't have any treatment and I'd already paid for treatment I'd been going through things yeah. and you didn't have this opportunity to do it for a good few years and then you had to go and the back burner because obviously all those people who were doing treatment and had it stopped they were all ahead of you so then it's like this massive thing and if dad yeah. hadn't done it I do wonder whether I'd have gone ahead and actually had the IVF because what he did was he taught me in an instant everything can change and you can have yeah. all these voices going this is the right way this is the wrong you're at your age Emma don't do it because of your age you know because you might be a parent who isn't around for your child in the long term and all those limiting voices it's amazing how we carry them all the time. Like limiting voices, mm -hmm. they're just bloody everywhere, aren't they? In your head, yeah. around you, critical mass of society, social media, loads of limiting voices telling you what you can and can't do. And I just <laughs> think, fuck it. I can do yeah. it. I can do whatever I want. And now I've yeah. got Etta Blue and she is just the most joyful thing. And obviously Aww. I think she's the most beautiful child that's ever walked the earth. And because <laughs> she's a girl, I can say that because I've got my boys who are equally the two most beautiful boys to ever walk Aww. the earth. I've got this little girl and I appreciate that she won't have my grandparents. You know, it's just not possible. They're not going to have grandparents. She's got grandparents on my husband's side, but not young, youthful grandparents, right? But she's got two older brothers and those older brothers are going to be parents to her as well we call her a baby because it's a family baby and yes yeah. that Aww. isn't the archetypal structure in our society is it you know the archetypal structure is parents live in a house with babies they grow up right well maybe that's not how I see things now you know maybe what I see is that I can have a family and my kids don't want to leave home like we want to have a farm together we want to have little homes on the farm together we have a very kind of family-centric perspective we all get on really well you know my son's girlfriend she's coming with us and we have totally changed our structure and identity with society since my father's death we've 
absolutely transformed our beliefs. And that's the beauty, I think, of trauma. And I know that's really hard, but if people are listening and they're like dealing with trauma, they've got a parent who's really sick mm-hmm. or they've been through their own mental health issues. It's like there is a there is a beauty of trauma. And that is that sometimes it takes the world and all the systems around it and it just blows them to smithereens. And most of the time when you're dealing with a parent who's mentally unwell or you're dealing with mental illness, if you actually take a step back, what you're often struggling with is systems. You're struggling with the system you're going to fit into, the system you're going to be treated by, the system you're trying to get help with. And when you mm-hmm. let go of all of that and you're like, well, maybe instead of rigidly trying to fit myself into systems and rigidly trying to fit myself into how I'm meant to be according to social media or how I'm meant to be according to education, and maybe instead I just go, oh, maybe part of the problem is I'm trying to fit into that system, then you wouldn't have the same struggle that you're having at the moment because... Like I said, I think a lot of the time we're rigidly trying to fit ourselves into systems that don't fit us. And there's nothing wrong with us. You know, we're just unique. (laughs) We're just really like your mum, babbling away to herself. She's just unique. You know what I mean? And in other countries that happens and they are considered Mm -hmm. unique. And with my weird tics, you know, just like I'd rather rather tick than feel physical anxiety and feel anxiety emotionally. I don't like it. Exactly. So displace it. And for all we talk about, you know mental health I'm not sure that there isn't still such a big stigma around it and around damn straight you know there's the there's the acceptable face of mental health problems yeah and then there's there's more presenting mental illness oh my god yeah we've still got a long way to travel oh oh god I mean honestly don't even start with my bugbears of every other celebrity coming out with ADHD or autism right because that makes it acceptable right whereas the true nature of some of these issues is not that somebody's just struggling with social anxiety you know they're dealing with this extreme condition that is deeply distressing for them and problematic and it blows my mind how we kind of celebrity wash a lot of these things and it's so untenable and unreachable for people who are actually dealing with the reality of that stuff. And like you said, we don't really have people in the press with schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, you know, but they're amazing human beings with the capacity to do incredibly well most of the time, yeah. not all the time, most of the time. So we haven't got anybody front facing in that way. And yeah. there's a sexiness to help mental health now. It's been marketed in a sexy way. <laughs> You know yeah. what I mean? It's been marketed yeah. in a sex way. I thought of it this, like that. You know, Victoria's Secrets model, who also has ADHD. You know, this TV presenter who's also autistic. Not that you'd know, not that you'd sense. It's only what they've said occasionally in the fact that maybe they masked a little bit in social situations. I'm not having to go at those people, by the way. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. You get your assessments and all that. You get your classifications. But let's not put you in the same category. Mm-hmm as somebody yeah. who genuinely is struggling and, on a day-to-day basis enormously. And actually, yeah. it'd be nice to see those kind of individuals, not just on a sofa chat for five minutes talking about how challenging it is, yeah. but actually bossing it in the job that they yeah. do and being given the yeah. access that they deserve. And I genuinely think there's been... A, it's like any marketing ploy, isn't it? The more sexy we make it, the more yeah. acceptable it is for us as to, to look at yeah. But it's not actually how it feels for the person who's dealing with it, yeah. who's really, really dealing with yeah. it. So, yeah, I agree with you completely. Like depression and anxiety as well are, yeah. I guess, in my mind, a wee bit more acceptable now. People talk a bit about that. Um, but like you say, I haven't seen anybody come out and say, I've got schizophrenia and this is exactly. what that looks like. 
And yeah. it's it's interesting because until and it's not just, I guess, about celebrity culture, although it helps because they are public facing. So it would be helpful yeah. to have more transparency yeah. there. It bloody would. But um, I think just generally educating people about these illnesses because they just I think there's just such a lack of understanding. Like there's a wee story. It's so it's so minor. But it really sticks in my head. My mum, years and years ago, when she was still living on her own at home, she clearly was having some sort of, I don't know, she used to go off her meds all the time. Nothing wrong yeah. with me. She'd had very little insight into her illness. Yeah. But so she'd occasionally go off her meds. And she used to go to this shopping centre in Glasgow. But she'd taxi back and forth and just, you know, she didn't she didn't work and she never worked really Um, after she was diagnosed. Anyway, she was there and it materialised. I heard about this from her and this is partly why I used to always worry but she was in the toilet she's obviously having some sort of issue um and she'd gone into the toilet and she was cutting her hair she'd bought scissors and was in the toilet I know see it's things like that that I would then like not be able to sleep at night because I was just worrying about her yeah but then the heartbreaking thing is the the security came in and escorted her like made her leave the shopping center and it's like oh my gosh clearly yeah, like clearly this is a woman with some something's going on there. Like it doesn't need to be that way, and it no. could overcome so much stigma. Absolutely, and people be more open about it, which then in the long term is better for families and the people with you know people with the conditions and the children and all of it. It could just be normalized. You know, I don't it's like true. the word normal, it, it, but no, you're right. No, normalized, as in you know people just accepting that this is just part and parcel of our society. And yeah. the people are different and in unique shapes. And I do totally agree with you. It is a bit mind-bending to me that we have such a high level of issues in the UK, you know, like we do around the world. Anxiety and depression, again, you know, when we think about real anxiety and real depression, it's very different from what's portrayed in the press and media a lot of the time. Because actually with real anxiety and depression, you often don't want to get out of bed. Everything terrifies you. Mm-hmm. You feel massively overwhelmed and just making a cup of tea, you've got to be a warrior. Because genuinely it's like yeah. stepping through the most incredible mud and trying to swim to yeah. wherever we're going because it's so painful. And again, mm-hmm. we do, we talk about anxiety and depression again in a bit of a minimal way in the press, you know? Yeah. Oh, I felt very anxious. Um, I used to really hate going to parties. Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> just ridiculous. That's yeah. not, it's not generalised anxiety disorder. You, you can't go to a yeah. party without feeling a bit uncomfortable. That's actually quite human, right? And that, the thing is, that's important yeah. that we normalise those kind of normal reactions. So sadness, that's not depression. You know, I went and did some research. I couldn't find a return on I feel sad. Three pages into Google, it was all depressed, depressed, depressed. No, you're not depressed. You're sad. You're sad. You're sad. Yeah. It's normal. A lot of people out there are sad. There's a lot yeah. you can do about it. Mm-hmm. Anxious. It's, it's not nerves. You know, anxiety, when it's real anxiety, it's like you feel like everything yeah. possibly is going to be a catastrophe and the world could end any minute, right? So, you know, again, yeah, yeah. we talk about anxiety and depression, but we don't talk about what it really is for people who yeah. really suffer from it and what what is really normal where people think they're suffering from it, but they're not suffering from it at all. They're just normal human yeah. beings in a well-adjusted state feeling things like yeah. nervousness or sadness because life is sad at times yeah. and life is provoking of yeah. nerves at other times. But when it comes down to the more harsh reality of mental illness, again, like you said, we don't have that really yeah. in front of us. We don't have people yeah. who people relate to as going, oh, actually, you know, I, I didn't get out of bed for four weeks. I didn't wash. 
you know yeah. but I'm actually somebody mm-hmm. who still runs a company because that's yeah. that's evident in so many places it's not the you know only I mean? thing it's not right. doesn't define it doesn't have exactly. to be the, the f- defining feature of somebody it can exactly. be part of who they are the only exactly. other thing I would say about I've noticed a little bit recently not going to go into too much detail because I'm pretty sure that's probably not allowed but um <laughs> n- noticing um a few times in the press with to do with celebrities who suddenly having had no mention of mental health problems before are now saying oh as as an excuse for bad behavior or what appears to be as an excuse for bad behavior well I'm struggling with my mental health well okay I'm you know not doubting that that might be the case but why it just sort of is like a sticking plaster here well I, I clearly behaved badly yeah, because it I... it makes sense. It's like, that's... A, okay, so people with mental health issues are out yeah. there causing loads of problems. No, we're not. It, it's just... I mean, it's yeah, ridiculous. It's, you know, yeah, that's like... So, you know, can you imagine in court if that was it? Every time somebody went and did something bad, oh, it was mental illness. Right, okay, well, we won't send yeah. you down then because, yeah. you know, even though you've been burglaring yeah. all your neighbours. Yeah. And some people stressed. are mentally ill and, and as a result, you know, there is there are behavioural, but it's just that sort yeah. of... That it's sort of occasionally I've noticed becoming a go-to you yeah. know, it's just yeah, again yeah, yeah. undermining the reality yeah. and the seriousness of mental health. People who are mentally well are more likely to harm themselves, not harm others. You know, at the end of the day, and it's like that increases the stigma without a doubt. Was your dad mentally ill when you were growing up? When you were younger, do you feel like that had any impact on you, or was that separate? My eating disorder was when I was like thirteen up until twenty three, twenty five. My dad got sick when I was about 26. I did get ill after dad got ill because I was nursing him. I moved home and I definitely got really skinny because I ended up in hospital with a really serious infection. And I think I'd reacted by stopping eating, but it wasn't the same as when I was dealing with my eating disorder. It was like, I just genuinely couldn't eat. And because you kind of get into a cycle where you're used to a certain behavior, it cycled into that situation. Yeah. So no, my yeah. I, I was a competitive swimmer for many years. And I think that that played a big so even the eating disorder it's like was I depressed and anxious no not at the time what I was doing was projecting all of my problems into my body so that I didn't have to deal with my emotional self which is probably why I ended up doing the therapeutic work that I've done which was to kind of bring myself back from my body into my emotions Mm -hmm. because I'm very good at body stuff you know I can put it into my body I'd rather have a backache than an issue with anxiety I'd rather have a nervous tick than an issue with anxiety so I have to learn to sit with my emotions so I think I've done that work therapeutically but still there's a constant battle in my body which is oh I'm just going to feel it in my legs as opposed to going to feel it in my head or my my heart so yeah my eating disorder is one of those things that feels like a million miles ago now it's another thing that I struggle with actually because when I hear people, I did my master's on eating disorders, and when I hear people talking about eating disorders like a terminal illness, you never ever get over it. It's always there. It's like, you know, it's not. <laughs> like, yeah. You can heal fully from a serious eating disorder and never think about food again in that way. Yeah. I just don't think that the language we use a lot of the time mm-hmm. associated with certain mental health issues is helpful. It's different when you have somebody with yeah. a classification like schizoaffective disorder or schizophrenia. You, know, you can't just magically get well without help there, right? You just can't. Mm-hmm. It's going to be yeah. there forever. But when it comes down to other things, it's temporary on the whole. And I think that if we started to see mental issues as mostly temporary, such as anxiety, depression, even things like anorexia, bulimia, etc., it would make 
life more hopeful when you get told that you are dealing with one of these things you know and don't even get me started yeah. on the way that we medicate we've just medicated the whole western world and we've never mm -hmm. been as unhappy and i'm like when are we gonna wake up and be like well maybe that's because we're doing it wrong maybe yeah. that's because the actual things that need to change are not yeah. with the person's internal chemistry maybe mm. the person who's anxious and depressed isn't actually broken at all maybe they're just reacting to a world around them that isn't working. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's because they're feeling isolated because they've not got a community. Maybe it's because they feel like they've been brought up through a system which made them feel like a failure because they weren't academic. But actually they're brilliant yeah. in so many different areas, yeah. but they're just not measured on those areas. Maybe if we could start helping people see that the very things that need to change are external, not internal to some degree, those individuals yeah. would find it easier. And like I think you say, social media has a big role to play oh. in that as well. Yeah. I mean, I've kind of taken quite a big break from social media. Like yeah. I used to tweet all the time and I realised that's really not good for my time or my mental health. So I think yeah, that yeah. you have to take some accountability and responsibility for those things, don't mm -hmm. you? Something occurs to me hearing your story, because we talk about children of parents with mental illness. And a lot of the time we're talking about, you know, the experience of growing up when you're a child with a parent with a mental illness. But actually that really doesn't cover the fact that when you're a young adult and even an adult with a parent with a mental illness, you continue in that space. So it's not it's not just about when you're a child. It's also about becoming an adult and also having a parent who is diagnosed or comes, becomes mentally ill when you're a young adult or an adult. It never stops having an effect, you know, no. it's, regardless no, of when this that, happens you're a kid. in your life. You're a you're, I mean, like, yeah, you know, I look back at myself in my 20s and even though I had my own house and, you know, I thought I was an adult, I knew nothing. You know what I mean? I knew absolutely nothing. And my dad, he always was the person that I went home to. I'd be like, you know, dad, can you come and pick me up? There was a standing joke in my local area that if I was in Greece and I called my dad and was like, dad, can you come and pick me up? He'd come. And all my mates would know Taylor Taxes. That's what we used to call it, Taylor Taxes, because he was, that was my dad. So my dad symbolised... I didn't have to be responsible. My dad symbolised yeah. he'd always gather me up. And so when he started to get ill, I mean, I didn't just lose the parent who gave me my foundation. I lost my perception of what safety was. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, as they get older, you feel like you're an adult, but you're not an adult until, you know, way into your I'd say late 30s, 40s, you maybe start realising then, yeah, I've got the control of other children that I've had. Now I'm a grown-up. But for me, when my dad got sick, I wasn't. I was just a kid in my imagination. And yeah. I look back now at that time and I think, God, it, it was. It was just shocking to it's see. A loss. To, oh, it's a loss. Yeah. I think yeah. that's the thing that, I yeah. don't know, I talk about a lot is just that sense of losing the parent either that you could have had or that the parent that they yeah. were. And yeah. that doesn't make any difference whether you're 10 or 26. It, You know, it's... Well, listen, I really hope that you get that farm. That is, I'll be watching and waiting to see what happens. And thank you so much, Emma. It's been a joy. Honestly, some of these conversations, I just feel like I could just chat all day honestly you just are a delight thank you so much Back at you. i really thanks for sharing your story as well i find it really um oh thanks. i find it really special when people just took cut the bullshit and talk about pain and suffering and, and joy 
yeah. and blessings and all of those things. It's well, what makes us thank the you people for that we are. No, God, I really, I'm, I'm unbelievably nosy, and I think that the best <laughs> things that we can ever connect with are other people's stories. Like I'll never forget yeah. you, Mum, and I'll never forget that scene, and I'll never forget the pain that you held within that. But I oh. also hope that you can kind of just let it go, because like, man, likewise, you just don't deserve that at all. Yeah, well, I think I have started to let it go, and Good. I think that you need to maybe, maybe the lesson from today is that you go, yeah, yeah I don't get to be me without all of that and so that last image is part of who you are now and you can't change that and you shouldn't want to thanks Emma honestly and thank you for sharing what is a really difficult story and honestly it's amazing to hear you talk about it and you're just so inspirational to be honest Ah. so thank you very much just doing what we're all trying to do just getting through right yeah going from a birth to b death in the <laughs> best possible way for as longest as possible just like i said i think the most important lesson for me is that life is full of suffering and that's okay that's a really growing learning thing and just breathe into it instead of trying to resist it because i think so many people do and you know i got a message from my sister recently actually my my custer yes cousin sister uh and she i we were just sort of messaging and saying you know how's it going and she just said life is a happening you know that was all and it just sort of encapsulated it really well i loved it i just thought yeah so true yeah yeah this is that that's that's the thing like there's nothing there's nothing you can do at times because there are all these variables around you and it's like trying to juggle with 15 oranges you're not going to be able to sustain it and some of them are going to fall but you'll catch some of them so some of them it'll be all right, right? And that's that's the way life is. Yeah, and sometimes you'll get hit in the face with a lemon and that's Absolutely. okay too. <laughs> <laughs> so what can you do? <laughs> oh, listen, lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you. This has been My Family, Mental Illness and Me. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget, we would love you to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts so you automatically get new episodes. Please share these stories with anyone you think might need to hear them. You can help bring talking about mental illness out of the shadows. If you're experiencing any of the issues discussed in this podcast, please know that you can get in touch with the charity Our Time. Our Time provides support to thousands of children and young people who have parents or guardians dealing with mental illness. It's ourtime.org. UK, or at Our Time Charity on social media. If you feel like you're struggling with mental health or you've been affected by anything in this episode, it's really important that you speak to someone. There are links to help in the show notes, but you can also contact your GP, call the Samaritans on 116 123 or contact Childline on 0800 1111. My Family, Mental Illness and Me is made for our time by Spoken Media. The production team are Patrick Wallace and Dave Howard. Original music composed by Joel Cox. Produced by the Spoken Media.